Unsilencing Stories is a podcast that reflects the voices of people in small towns and communities in Canada who have lost loved ones to the toxic drug supply crisis. Since 2016, more than 30,000 people have died from fatal overdoses in Canada, and that number continues to climb. The risk in smaller towns and communities is much higher than in urban areas because of a lack of harm reduction services and stigma against substance use and people who use drugs. This podcast is part of a community-based participatory research project facilitated by Erin Goodman, PhD, a faculty member at Kwantlen Polytechnic University in Surrey, BC, along with students Jenna Keeble and Ashley Pokernich. The aim was to assist collaborators in publicly memorializing their loved ones and expressing grief, as well as challenging silences imposed by dominant media organizations and stigma from society against substance use and people who use drugs. We hope these nuanced stories make a clear why the government needs to be doing more to prevent further deaths. In this episode, you'll hear Tasia McLucky interviewing Tiffany Vaughn about her brother, Corey, who experienced a fatal overdose in October 2021 in Medicine Hat, Alberta, at age 48. Are you um, comfortable sharing your first and last name? Yes. Yes, I am. So, hi, my name is Tiffany Vaughn, and I, um, I live in Turner Valley, Alberta. And um, I lost my brother, Corey, to a fentanyl drug overdose. How long ago um, was it that you lost your brother? He passed away on October 27th, 2021. Where was he living during that time? And how old was he? My brother was living in Medicine Hat, Alberta, and he passed away when he was 48 years old. And... um, How old are you compared to the age of your brother? I am 18 months younger than my brother. And we were very, very close growing up and and before he passed as well. My kids are 18 months apart. And so, yeah, that is, that's a uh, love to hate and hate to love each other age gap, I think. Oh, is it? (laughs) (laughs) We got along, but we fought, but we got oh, along. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you have, like, a favorite memory that you would like to share? Something that comes to your mind? Yeah, I do. And actually, it's a favorite memory, but a sad memory, but one that I will never, ever, ever forget. Um, and it had it happened in the summer of last year. There will be tears when I say this one. Mm-hmm. Um last year in July and he uh, my brother um, was taking fentanyl and he was overdosing and I live three and a half hours away from my family my mom and dad also live in Medicine Hat and my mom had gone over to my brother's apartment um, to have coffee with him and he was overdosing and so she called me and and I said, take him to emergency right away so they can give him some nalox- naloxone. And um, I got in my vehicle right away and I made my way down there. She had sent me a video of, of him and it didn't look good. And so I knew that it was very serious. So I drove down there and he was in emergency for a while. The um, naloxone worked and... But they said the it only lasts for a little while. So make sure you keep your eye on him and make sure he stays with you guys. So we took him back to my parents' house and 
we watched him. Medicine Hat had been experiencing a severe drought last summer, and it hadn't rained in a long time. But we were sitting out on my parents' front porch area, my mom and dad and I and my brother, and it started pouring rain, pouring rain, like it hadn't in a long time. And my brother got up and he walked down the driveway and he said, Tiff, let's go dance. Let's go dance in the rain. And like when we were kids and I had just dislocated my knee one week prior to that, where I literally couldn't hardly walk. I had a big knee brace on. Um, It was a very bad injury. And so I was like, I can't go. And he, he went out into the middle of the street and was dancing in the rain. And I, I couldn't get up, but I heard something say, go dance with your brother, go and dance with your brother. So I hobbled my way out to the street and I danced in the rain with my brother and my mom got it on video. And then we walked across the street. They live across the street from a school and we went and laid down on the grass and held hands and told each other how much we loved each other and that he would get through this. And I had my phone and I got it on video as well. And he made a joke that he hoped my camera was waterproof (laughs) because it was raining so hard on us. My mom got those pictures as well of us laying on the grass together. And then when we got up, all of the neighbors on their street had come out and they were all dancing in the rain. It was so unbelievable. It was so cool because it hadn't rained in so long. And it was like we invited everybody out to enjoy that moment with us. And that is something I will never forget for the rest of my life. And two months later, he died. Oh, that like hit me. I like, I felt that really hard. <laughs> you were saying like just how close you guys were, were in age. What was it like growing up with your brother? So amazing. <laughs> After he passed away, I went through 20,000 photos. <laughs> and I know it was 20,000 because I helped my mom and dad put all their photos <laughs> on the computer. So I was going through all of these photos to make his um, memorial video and as I was going through it I was just like man we had a lot of fun when we were little we did so much stuff together like we skated together on the outdoor rink all the time we my grandparents lived across the street from a school with one of those old fire escapes with the big slide and you weren't supposed to go on it but we did every single day <laughs> we were bad that way um, we played hide and seek in the neighborhood all the time. Like there was just so many really good memories with my brother and we just were really, really close. And then when my sister was born, she was six years younger than me. It was like she was our little doll and we just adored her. And yeah, lots of good memories with my brother for sure. What did your brother love to do? My brother loved hockey, loved hockey. Yeah, he, and he was so, so good and like so good. Like I would go and I call myself a rink rat because literally we were at the rink all the time with my brother. And there were times where I was ticked that I had to be up at six in the morning because my brother had to play hockey. But then when we got to the rink, I would get hot chocolate and then I would be fine. (laughs) And then I would cheer on my brother and he was so good. He 
was like a high scorer all the time and we had WHL scouts coming to our farm when we lived in Saskatchewan to talk to my parents about potentially um, trying out for WHL teams. He was a very, very good hockey player. How old was he when he stopped playing hockey? He was in grade eight and that's when he first started getting into experimenting with drugs. He had a very addictive personality and it didn't take long and it he was hooked and that is when the crime started as well for my brother. He he started with pot and then just escalated from there and pretty much from the time he was 13 years old he was in and out of rehab facilities or remand facilities, jail. My brother spent two two times in federal penitentiary in Alberta and that was really hard. I was always there visiting him and it's really hard going into a federal pen, going through all those security checks to go and see a loved one. It's very, very difficult to do that. But once he got out, there was a really long stretch of time where he was doing really, really well, really well. He met somebody and who had a two-year-old child already, and then they ended up having twins. So he was a dad to three beautiful kids, and he was doing really well. He was doing really well. But drugs are so difficult to stop using, and he, uh, he got back into them. And yeah. because of the extensive amount of time my brother spent in federal penitentiary he developed um or didn't develop i should say how to deal with money and how to deal with finances and how to deal with responsibilities and the barter system is what you use in jail but you don't use it out in the real world and he never never could grasp the concept of money and how that works and how priorities and that was a very large stressor for my brother is how to deal with that that was going to be my question that you kind of already started to answer was how do you think the response to his substance use impacted him you were saying how he he didn't come out with the tools that were necessary for someone who had been using you know such mind altering mm-hmm. substance since they were a child on on like a developing brain He didn't develop any of the skills required, not only just from using the drugs when he was a teenager and that developing brain, but then also then going into a federal penitentiary and not learning the tools for when he got out. He didn't learn those that skill set either. When you're in a in a jail setting, you're just bartering. That's all you're doing. You're you're trading something for cigarettes. You're trading this for that and not really understanding the importance of the work that's required to get that money. And then when you get it, what your priorities are. Yeah, it uh, his health issue was not treated like a health issue. So when you come out of a jail and you don't know how to deal with money, because everything is money in, in life to live, you have to know how to deal with money. And he didn't know how. And so selling drugs, dealing with drugs, is an easy fallback because that's all I knew. You go to what you know. We all tried 
We all tried. Our whole family tried. I'm an accountant, okay? So I tried to do, like, his budgeting. I tried to help him. Yeah. It's very hard when it's your family, though. But he went to different facilities to try and help with that. What I will say about my brother is he was a, a really hard worker. He worked so hard for the money that he did make. Yeah. He just didn't know what to do with it. And so in the last couple of years, he was struggling, like everybody in this COVID world, with making money and paying bills and figuring all of that out. My brother worked in the oil and gas industry as a trucker for quite some time. and uh, But in the last couple of years of his life, he was driving cab mm -hmm. in Medicine Hat so that he could be home more for his kids. And there was somebody that got in his cab one day that changed everything. And it was somebody that just said the right words on the right day mm -hmm. at the right time to my brother about how much money he could make dealing drugs. And that was it. That was it. My brother was so desperate for money just to pay for rent and stay in his apartment and not lose the home that he had for his kids that he started dealing fentanyl. And then he started using, obviously, fentanyl. And it went, it was a very quick, quick pro progression after that because it was, it was uncut. Like he was, he was dealing with the big guys you were saying that you know when he when he got out of jail that he was doing really well for like quite some time i'm curious to know what you think helped him do really well at that time he went on the methadone program for quite some time and that was working but methadone you have to go every day and or at that time anyway i don't know what it is like now but every day and that's really hard when you are um, working in the oil and gas industry and driving trucks and not know where you're going to mm -hmm. be, what area of the province you're going to be. And so it was very limiting for him. Yeah. He got to the point where he was able to do carries and that was working for mm -hmm. a bit. And then, um, then he moved to the Suboxone program. And that was also working for quite some time. Why did he switch? Um, I don't actually know why that switched. That switch happened, to be honest. Um, something that I've actually wanted to ask my mom and dad if they know. My mom would definitely know. Anytime it's a pill format mm -hmm. or something that can be shared, my brother shared. Mm -hmm. My brother started selling Suboxone. And he had a girlfriend mm -hmm. that needed it and mm -hmm. so they split it and anytime you split your dose you're mm -hmm. not getting the required amounts to yeah. help your brain fill those pockets right so as soon as that started happening that's when mm -hmm. the cravings and the urge came back full force and he needed something yeah. to fill that void and um, he knew I knew that it wouldn't be long we had many conversations in the last year of his life, him and I, just him and I, about him wanting to go, that he was trying to overdose. He knew, based on the amount of fentanyl that he was taking, that he should have been, mm -hmm. he should have died millions of times. And this Suboxone was definitely helping curb that, not letting it happen. 
until it did. And uh, we believe it was actually during a deal that mm. he was um, dealing mm. to somebody and the person wanted mm. him to try it as well. And he had already had some. And so it was just too much for his system at that time. That was when, um, when he was doing really well, did he ever share with you what his goals were or you know things that he had planned what he wanted to do with his life? No, because I think he always knew that he wouldn't be here because he told me. Mm-hmm. He told my mom. That's really He hard. desperately wanted to be here for his kids mm-hmm. and for us. He really did. Obviously, you don't want to leave your kids and your family, but he didn't want to be here anymore. And that was very, very obvious. The Sounds like he had that experience of, you know, he kind of knew where it was going to go. I imagine that being a very scary thing. He was scared, but he was peaceful, if that makes any sense. I saw the mm-hmm. peace in his in his face and in his demeanor, especially in the last year when we talked about it. You could mm-hmm. tell that he had made, he had come to terms with it, that this was his life or would be how he died. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to explain it, but he just knew that he wouldn't, he, he told me many times, I'm not going to live to 50. I, I know I'm not. Yeah. And we always just kept saying, yes, you are, you know, we'll work through this. But I tell you, when I was laying on that grass, holding his hand, I knew that it was going to happen very soon. And actually three days before he died, I told my dad, you're running out of time to tell your son that you love him because he's not going to be here much longer. And he died three days later. I know he's in a better place for him. I know he's okay now. And I know he's happy. And I, But I just miss him. Yeah. Like, just talking with him. What I've heard is a story about, you know, a... Uh, a child with so much opportunity ahead of them with talent and a family that loved him and someone who opened their heart to another child had some of his own but in a world where the system fails people and um, I'm so sorry I'm sorry that the alternative that he had in his mind was to not be here anymore and I, and I believe he believed that. Yeah. It sounds like that that's what he was met with from the start of uh, what his options were. And I'm so sorry. All tragedy like this, mm-hmm. good things do come. And I know he's working with me to do some of the work that I'm doing. Because I had started a podcast two years ago called Hard Beautiful Journey. And it was to talk about my own hard beautiful journey. But over the last four seasons, um, and now with him passing, I'm focusing my podcast pillars on mental health and trauma and addictions and people that experience that and families that are left with it as well and the grief that goes with that. I know what I'm doing is helping people as well, and I have that experience now to talk about it firsthand and I know what they're going through. So there is some good coming out of it. And I'm just grateful that I know he's with me. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Unsilencing Stories podcast. To listen to more interviews in the series, please go to www.unsilencingstories.com. 
And if you'd like to share your thoughts on the episode, message us at unsilencingstories at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and please share the project of other people you know.